We don't want to see insurance be the bottleneck of the industry, of, of the scaling that we want to see. But I am concerned that where projects are being cited and how they're being built is just not considering insurance, which is one of the only long-term year-on-year costs that the project is going to have. It's really imperative that we think about this realistically. Welcome to Climate Positive, a podcast produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions. I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. In this series, we host candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate-positive future. Assessing, pricing, and insuring against climate risk for over a decade, Sarah Kane, now the co-leader of the Power and Renewables Practice and Executive Vice President of CAC Specialties Natural Resources Practice Group, brings her 360-degree view of the property and casualty insurance markets to discuss the impact of the increasing number and severity of catastrophic weather events on renewable energy projects. I also discussed with Sarah the sobering findings of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Sixth Assessment Report, the promise of professional career growth from crisis situations, the difference gender diversity makes in the workplace, and much more. So with that, Here is Sarah Kane in conversation with me, Chad Reed. Sarah, thanks for joining us at Climate Positive. Thanks for having me. So this is our very first in-person podcast interview. We are both vaccinated. We are. We have shown proof of that. Um, (laughs) And so we encourage all of our listeners and their friends and family to get vaccinated too so we can all return to normality. So that they too can come be on a podcast. (laughs) Exactly. Maybe you'll get an invitation from (laughs) us. Who knows? (laughs) Excellent. Well, well, thanks again, Sarah. We always like to begin the show with a discussion of our guests' individual journey into the climate space. And so for you, you obtained a few impressive degrees, a BA from Duke, a Master of Environmental Management, and an MBA from Yale. After you got those degrees, you found your way into the environmental insurance space and you focused on new product development. But what were the formative experiences in your early life that cemented your desire to commit your career to environmental work broadly? It's a good question. I've always been interested in environmental issues. I was trying to think back on kind of where that came from. I think fostered in part by my family. My dad used to follow me around and turn off all the lights and encourage recycling. He helped me organize an Earth Day event in my sixth grade class. Uh, So from that, I was looking at environmental science programs when I set out for college, and that's kind of how I landed on Duke in the first place. So it was somehow in the formative years that I knew enough that I wanted to major in it when I went to school. Yeah, when I was growing up, my mom would encourage me to recycle, and that was I, I didn't get much of an allowance, but that's some extra money that I was able to, mm-hmm. to make, and I was one of four or five dollars. That's a lot of money. Yeah, when you would bring the soda and... cans back and get the nickels. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I worked either directly or indirectly for two companies that eventually declared bankruptcy. And you have some experience working with companies facing severe financial distress as well. So you started your career, I believe, with AIG, the big multinational finance and insurance corporation. And you were at AIG from 2007 to about 2010. And this was during the height of the financial crisis when the firm received a very controversial bailout from the federal government, which arguably saved it from declaring bankruptcy itself. And it had to do that because of very poor risk management practices. But maybe you could talk to us a little bit about your experience in the environmental insurance products group at AIG during this uh, very challenging period. Yeah. 
So I came out of business school with an interest in how you use the insurance mechanism for uh, for anything, really, but the signals that it could provide. I was interested in uh, learning about how you could use insurance to send climate signals, climate resilience signals. So you know, insurance has been used historically. It can be used as a signal for any sort of risk management that we'd like to see people adopt. So fire extinguishers and smoke alarms and airbags, but also coastal development uh, signals that it can send with the pricing mechanisms. I was interested in thinking about, is there a way that that can be used for thinking about carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions as a pollutant? AIG had really pioneered the use of environmental insurance, which was really putting a price on environmental risk. And they were thinking about more traditional environmental contaminants, ground and, and water pollution. And then to the event that there was an incident and you were liable for the cleanup, you could buy insurance to support those efforts. So that was kind of how I thought it would be really fascinating to learn how the insurance mechanisms could be used for environmental issues to then think about how it could be used more broadly. And also at the time in 2007, AIG was the only U.S. insurer who was act- taking an active position on climate change and actually lobbying the federal government for legislation on climate change. So it was a really exciting place to work, and I got to kind of moonlight in that group while really being focused in AIG Environmental. So I was there for about a year before the financial crisis happened, and it was a scary time. You know, it was just interesting. We were There was two days we would sit in our offices and just, like, read the news all day. Meanwhile, the news is outside trying to get news from us, and we're like, I don't know anything. I'm just waiting for you to tell me something. Uh, I was really fortunate at the time to have a really inspiring leader who was really empathetic about what we were all going through. I had colleagues who had been at AIG for 30 years who were watching the company sort of fall apart before their eyes. And then there were those of us who had really only been in the business for a few months and were all just kind of scared. And he really convened us once an hour to tell us anything that he knew as it was unfolding in real time. So it was a really great example of that kind of empathetic leadership uh, and just being vulnerable and, and kind of trying to help people through something that was scary altogether. So I'm really grateful for that experience. It was a lot of talented people, uh, many of which I'm still in touch with. It was a good formative experience uh, in the insurance industry, although certainly not one I'd, I'd wish on anybody. My role there had been in product development, which is not revenue generating directly. And what I kind of realized in the aftermath of that as the dust was settling is that to be in an underwriting organization, you should be an underwriter. So I tried to start to transition to that. But when I think about environmental insurance, it's really a non-traditional insurance product for traditional industry. And what I realized I'd rather focus on was a more traditional insurance product being property insurance for what was at the time a new industry being renewable energy. So I transitioned from underwriting at AIG, which I did briefly, to underwriting at more renewable energy specialist companies from there. Could you just give us an example of a project when you were working environmental insurance before you got into the property insurance space that you sold? And, and who bought the insurance? Why did they buy the insurance? How did it work, et cetera? Yeah. So if you think about all of the sort of environmental legislation that we've had from the 70s and 80s that makes you legally liable if there is a spill or an environmental event, once that existed, then in, to the extent that there was a breach of that and you could be held legally liable for it, then there can be an insurance policy that helps address that, be it cleanup costs, defense costs, anything like that, any sort of third-party damages. So pollution legal liability is the environmental insurance product that AIG created and certainly that many other insurers started to offer and, and refine as well that addressed that exposure. So if you think about anyone who deals in chemicals or waste transporting or that kind of thing, that there could be a pollution event when you traditional pollutants that could spill and then would need to be cleaned up, that's what the application is. Right. It was really enabled by legislation initially in, yes. from the 70s and the Clean Air and Water Act, et cetera. Exactly. Okay. It's used often, we think about brownfields, reclamation. If you've ever been the owner of a piece of property that has environmental damage on it, you could be held liable for the cleanup of it. So a lot of times when thinking about brownfields revitalization, you could be thinking about using pollution insurance as a way to protect yourself from any events you might be 
brought into just by factor that you're holding title to the piece of property, whether or not you were responsible for the pollution at that right. site. So it would be the landowner and or the big chemical or other companies that would be responsible for the environmental damage themselves who would purchase this insurance. Mm-hmm. And if there was a spill, or if there was some large environmental incident mm-hmm. and you know the federal government and or private citizens or other companies were coming after them, this insurance would pay for whatever the cleanup associated with with this particular issue and, exactly. and potentially litigation costs, I assume, as exactly. well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So after stints with a couple other big insurers you mentioned, you moved in-house to manage risk and insurance at Sun Edison, the large multinational renewable energy developer whose bankruptcy was the largest, I believe, of 2016. And you just joined a few months before Sun Edison declared bankruptcy. So tell us a little bit about your experience walking into that experience. Did you have any idea that the company that you were joining was going to declare bankruptcy? None. I was young and naive and I'm very just very excited about that opportunity. Sun Edison had been one of my largest clients. So I had by that point moved to being an underwriter of property insurance, most specifically for renewable energy projects. And Sun Edison was my largest client. And at that point, they were buying up all my other clients. Uh, and when the risk management seat became available, I at one point thought, I'm going to retire from this job. This is my dream job here. Uh, it felt good to get back closer to the projects and the, and the people doing the work. Um, as an, an underwriter in the space, I loved being part of it, but I felt very removed from it. And I I was really excited about the opportunity to be closer to it. Day one on the job, I realized it was a bit of a uh, ticking time bomb, I guess you could say. I mean, there's a lot of people already kind of fleeing for the exits. That's probably why my seat was vacant in the first place, if I think back on it. But I, you know, as much as that was a really challenging time, both, you know, tactically, I didn't really, there was a lot to figure out how to do, but also challenging to watch a company that had so much potential kind of fall apart in both slow and then quick motion. There were so many talented people there. There were so many really inspiring people there. And I learned more in the 19 months I was there than I had, I don't even know, in all my experience up to that (laughs) point. So I always call it my career crucible moment. I was the only person in the organization with insurance in my title. I came in it from a property underwriting standpoint, thinking about the 1,400 assets that Sun Edison owned around the world and how I was going to think about insurance and risk management around these projects. And then all of a sudden I was handling a director's and officer's liability claim and taking apart a surety program, as well as going through two property and casualty renewals while I was in that seat. So very challenging, but certainly gave me an opportunity to be in rooms that I had no business being in, but could kind of figure out as I went. I had brokers who were supporting me and lots of people to ask questions of. So like I said, as much as it was sad in a lot of ways to sort of be there for the taking apart of a company that had held so much potential, it was also, you know, the most formative experience of my career. And can you talk a little bit about property and casualty insurance, just for those of us who who may not be as well-versed in the industry as you are? So it's useful to think about property insurance as what we call first-party insurance. So that's if something happens to something I own or operate, and I want to fix it. So you can think about that as, you know, your house floods or your car insurance, and you want to fix it. But for large projects, it's it's if there's a hail event and you have to replace the panels or um, a windstorm event or something like that. So it's like homeowner's insurance or car insurance for companies that own and operate projects. Exactly. Really. So it's not, you're not worried about something happening to your house or your car, but your solar plant, you know, if, if it gets damaged in some way from hail, maybe, mm-hmm. or, or some other natural event, most likely, then this insurance will will cover those damages. That's right. Got it. So you started on the carrier or insurer or underwriter side of mm-hmm. the business. Then you moved to in-house. So you were actually the, the corporate buyer of insurance. And then finally, you moved to the broker side of the business, where you now represent 
buyers in their interactions with insurers. And you are now the co-leader of the Power and Renewables Practice and the Executive Vice President at uh, CIC's Natural Resources Practice Group. So could you tell us a little bit about what your role involves now and what specifically CAC and its natural practices group focuses on? So within CAC Natural Resources, we're trying to represent all of the participants in the energy spectrum, really. So we have a power and renewables team, we have a metals and mining team, and we have an oil and gas team. And we're thinking about those people and trying to help them buy their insurance across all lines of coverage. So I talk about the insurance that a project has to buy, but also at a corporate level, we're thinking about directors and officers' liability. We're thinking about employer liability. We're thinking about more broadly anything that a corporate entity might need to be insured against. And then there's some sort of insurance products that might cross the line into some financial products. We think about tax liability. There's some insurance around that that we can support. So really any kind of insurance purchase, a sophisticated insurance buyer comes through a broker and we represent them in the market. Okay. So you're the the middleman, so to speak, between the companies that are buying insurance and the insurers that are selling it. Exactly. finding the right match between these two. That's exactly it. Great. Well, we didn't plan it this way, but Our discussion occurs just one week after the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, which is a UN-sponsored body that has periodically released a synthesis of current climate science since its founding in the late 1980s. It released its updated assessment on the projected pace and impacts of climate change. And perhaps unsurprisingly, its findings are very grim. First, it states unequivocally, for the first time, that human activity, and specifically the burning of fossil fuels and the resulting carbon emissions, is what's driving climate change. So humans are responsible. I'll also note that atmospheric carbon dioxide is now at a 2 million year peak. The report also makes clear that climate change impacts are accelerating, that global temperatures will keep rising, and that catastrophic weather events will become even more extreme and more common, and that sea levels will rise and that this will be essentially irreversible. So obviously, the slower we are to limit global carbon emissions, the more severe these impacts will be. So these are the risks, the risks that are growing. And none of us, whether we're homeowners or property owners or operators of large wind, solar, other sorts of energy generation or storage facilities, we don't want to be exposed to this level of risk, which is getting worse. And so we're all reexamining our insurance coverages at this point in time. It seems like it's a good time to be in the business of selling insurance. Has that been your experience? Uh, Yes and no. We're definitely in what we call a hardening market environment because all of those impacts you described have historically up to this point been paid for in one way or another by insurers, at least in part. So insurers are reacting in the same way that buyers are reacting. And, you know, buyers might want more at the same time because they're seeing a risk at the same time, whereas insurers might want to cut back a bit because they're paying for that risk and maybe not pricing for it accurately. So we're just in this moment where the increased frequency and severity of natural catastrophe events are making insurance a little bit harder to come by at the exact same moment that people want it more. So whether or not insurers are writing the business profitably or right now they're maybe trying to recoup past losses by thinking about charging an increased rate at this moment, and also they're trying to position themselves for future losses. If we think about their role is to collect enough premium so that then when something goes wrong, they have the sufficient capital to pay out those claims insurance costs are going up. That doesn't necessarily mean it's good for the insurers because they're still paying those claims and really trying to think through what the right price to be and really where they want to deploy their capital. There are still, unfortunately, deniers who would say, you know, climate change isn't really happening. 
but you are seeing evidence on a daily basis that physical, large physical assets, very expensive projects are being damaged or destroyed by a greater number and severity of weather events. And this is what you're seeing every day in your work. Is that right? That's right. And there's a certain irony in the fact that renewable energy projects, we're an investor, that's what you focus on in your space, which are scaling rapidly to address the climate crisis, are some of the most exposed to these increased climate change impacts. So for those of us who are not well-versed in in basic insurance jargon, could you explain what we mean by natural catastrophe or NatCat events and and also the subset of those that are categorized as extreme weather events? So natural catastrophe is basically an extreme weather event. Uh, There are things that historically we don't think of happening very frequently, although that's obviously changing. Um, But when they do happen, they have a large impact. So the main three natural catastrophe events that we used to think about from a property insurance standpoint were what we call windstorm, which is basically hurricanes, flood, and earthquake. However, recently, where the most losses have been paid are, you know, at some point people were calling them the soft cat events. Uh, There are other extreme weather events that traditionally had not been classified as natural catastrophe, but those are things like wildfire and hail and tornado and freezing events. Those things are causing significant damage, maybe even more so than the three that we've historically paid most attention to and developed models around and pricing for. So that's what we mean by natural catastrophe. And the definition has been broadening. And once that happens from a property insurer standpoint, they're thinking more critically about the exposure of a specific location to that broader list of things that could go wrong that are you know, generally weather events. And what they'll do is they will charge more for that. They will restrict the coverage, meaning how much money they will ultimately pay you in the event of such a loss. And they'll increase your deductible for those sorts of perils. So what sort of NETCAT or extreme weather events are having the most impact on wind and solar projects today? And also based on your experience, what has been the most impactful or costly event over the last decade or so? So we've been in a hard market for about two years, and it really hinged on one watershed moment that really turned the market overnight. And that was a very large hail event in West Texas that impacted one solar project, and the insurers paid out $85 million on that one claim. Prior to that, the next largest claim that I'm aware of was a tornado that was $47 million. And prior to that, we were talking about a battery claim that was a long time ago. So the two largest, by far, events that have impacted solar projects are natural catastrophe events. And we see that across the industry, even not even just for those two large events as, as sort of the big ones that stand out, but we'll see a lot of windstorm claims and flooding claims that impact solar projects at an increasing rate. There's certainly other things that can go wrong with a solar project that would cause an insurer to have to pay, so theft and mechanical breakdown and that sort of thing. But by and large, it's natural catastrophe events that are impacting solar projects. And I share your view about the irony about, you know, these projects are trying to be part of the solution, and yet they're being dinged by these same factors that I should say are not just impacting the renewable energy projects that are looking for property insurance. These impacts are being felt across everybody trying to buy property insurance right now, but it does feel particularly challenging to, or or sort of a salt in the wound for a project that's actually trying to be part of a solution to be struggling with such exorbitant increases in their insurance costs. Absolutely. Isn't it also the case that these NATCAT and extreme weather risks, particularly in the U.S., are no longer confined to specific regions or or even seasons? I I know that California is not just experiencing catastrophic, almost year-round wildfires, although it is, but it's also witnessed some unheard of tornado damage recently. So can you talk a little bit more about how we're seeing these events impact regions and 
different parts of the year that we maybe haven't seen before. I mean, people historically would think that the hurricane season is seasonal, that there's a period that we expect hurricanes from June to November. But certainly our first name storms this year started in May. So we're seeing an extending of the period that we could have those sorts of events. And we also see them happening in different places. So when I first started underwriting, we considered any coastal county along the Atlantic and Gulf Coast as high hazard for windstorm. And we would think about projects in those counties differently than projects in other parts of a state. And that has not actually been true when it comes to the events that we've seen. So a few years back when we were seeing a bunch of named windstorms going through North Carolina, those were mostly inland events. So the projects that were insured but were inland North Carolina might have had full limits for windstorm, which basically means they were insured for the full value of the project, whereas if they had been located coastally, they would not have had that. So we're seeing sort of a redefining of what is considered a high hazard location. Similarly, the peril of hail, we didn't think about it prior to two years ago. It was silent in a policy, meaning if it's silent, it's covered. And it really wasn't until this event that everyone kind of sat up and took notice. And, well, not only can hail cause significant damage, $85 million for one project's recovery, we hadn't even thought about it. We weren't pricing it, and we were basically giving it away for free, and we were providing full limits for it. So that's clearly unsustainable. So even though you know, not every insurer paid that claim, they all act as, as if they did. And I think that was responsible. They all had to kind of sit up and say, well, this is clearly something that can cause a significant damage. We're not underwriting it at all. We need to be thinking about that more critically. I will say I think there was a bit of an overreaction, and we're probably still in that period where hail coverage is still uh, very hard to come by. But certainly there's been a ton of effort made to develop models that think about hail more specifically so that we can get smarter on the resilience of a specific panel to hail of a certain size so that we could be smarter about how we price that kind of capacity. Because all of this comes up against sort of what is required of a project. And all of the requirements for the property insurance that a project buys comes from the debt and tax equity on the project and what those investors are looking to push to insurers to de-risk a project. So now projects are having to buy more expensive insurance or different, more expansive insurance than they once did. So how are these events and the resulting claims impacting projects under development or under construction? Are we seeing them, the siting of such projects move to different areas? Are we seeing changes in in the construction of the projects in terms of hardening them or making them more resilient to these sorts of previously rare risks? We're starting to. I will say that the property coverages apply both during construction and operation. And so, and the risks are slightly different. So a solar project that's under construction, you might have, you know, panels that are, you know, sitting out, not, not secured necessarily. We have, you know, roads that might not be hardened yet. They're temporary construction roads that could be washed out in the event of a flood. So all of those things are property exposures for a project in construction, which might be different from a project in operation. The same type of property insurance applies in both cases. So it's really important to think about the development phase where there is no property insurance in place, but all of the decisions that are going to impact the future insurability of a project are made in the development phase. And you're right that there historically there just hasn't been much of a connection between the insurance community and the folks who are doing the development. It's it's something that we've noticed within our team over the last few years is very problematic. We will identify for our clients who are typically the, the people who are buying insurance for operational assets or assets under construction, we might advise them and we do, you know, if they're considering a certain project, we might say that is going to be very difficult to insure, not just now, but in the future. And you might want to consider not investing in that project. It's not advice we want to give necessarily. And we're very thoughtful when we do it. But, you know, you can think about someone taking a 20-year ownership position in a project and having to think about the insurance assumptions for the life of that project based on some 
faulty assumptions that are made at the development phase. So first and foremost, it's about where the project is. Is it exposed to flood or hail or windstorm or all of the above or wildfire or earthquake or all of that? And more and more, there's really no place that's not exposed to at least one natural catastrophe peril. So that's problematic in and of itself, but certainly not insurmountable. And and we can think through how we price for it uh, and how we help our clients think about what their insurance budget should be. But then absolutely there are things, if, if even given sort of the qualities of a site that might make it more likely to experience a natural catastrophe event, we can say, well, fine, you might still want to build in this site because there's other compelling reasons to do so. So what can we do from an engineering and design standpoint that would make this a better project? And we're trying to give that advice directly to the development community now that historically has not necessarily had that because they typically don't have a relationship with an insurance broker because they're not buying property insurance. So that's the disconnect that we've seen, that we're really trying to square that circle and make sure we we can get that advice directly to the development community. And what sort of advice is that? Can you give us an example of one thing you might advise a developer in terms of hardening a solar or wind project to either whether it's hail or making it a little bit more resilient to a windstorm? You know, what sort of measures can they really take? Yeah. So on a particular site, you know, certain portions of the site are going to be more exposed to flood than others. And so we'll first and foremost make sure we're going to go to the the least exposed portion of a site to the extent that we can figure that out based on the hydrology. And then it's things like placing inverters and other electrical equipment off the ground. It's things like choosing the panels that can withstand specific hail diameters that are more fit for purpose. Same with you know sort of the racking, making sure it's it's durable enough for the expected wind speeds. Maybe not even the expected wind storms today, but a view on what the expected wind speeds could be at that site. And sort of building a little bit of headroom for future changes. Sensor technology that helps us see a storm coming and, and go to a stow position. Uh, that will be looked upon more favorably. And then we think about, like I mentioned before, sort of the prudent risk management that we could do during construction, really thinking through your natural catastrophe plans during the construction phase, and then investing in meaningful vegetation management more and more. As much as hail kind of turned the market two years ago, all we talk about now is wildfire. And really what you can do there is build fire breaks and think about the height of the vegetation in and around and under the panels and making sure that there's fire protection in place. So all of that is, is are things that need to be considered in the development phase. By the, if that's not considered, by the time a project comes to us for insurance, there's often very little that can be done at that point to improve the risk profile of a project. And as we're on the risk profile, I mean, these risk profiles are based on rather sophisticated models, right, that are based on historic weather patterns, projected weather patterns that are impacted by climate change. How have these models fared during this period? Uh, have some been more successful than others? How do you assess their credibility going forward? Yeah, we get stuck in the modeling trap a lot. I mean, certainly they are very powerful tools. Uh, historically, they were meant to be used by insurers to think about their aggregation of risk, how they want to think about pricing. Uh, so, you know, for example, I used to work in an insurer, and, and, and maybe that insurer says, in, in a given year, I want to put up $300 million worth of windstorm capacity. How do I think about where to price that? You know, could I charge more if I'm selling it to like a hotel chain versus a solar project? It's the same windstorm capacity. It might be exposed to the exact same storm. So the models were really built to think through that, sort of the aggregation of risk. It's become different now. And a lot of times we're looking at modeling a specific location for the benefit of an owner or an investor and thinking about what's the probable maximum loss at this location. That's very useful, but we've become very reliant on it. And it's really just meant to be one tool. 
but we, we have an over-reliance on the models for a purpose that they weren't really built for. I'll say also the models have historically been backwards looking, and so they're recalibrated all the time, but in a climate change environment, that's not telling you much. And they've really only been built for those natural catastrophe perils that I mentioned earlier, the windstorm and flood really, and earthquake to some extent too, but we feel like we have enough information that those models can be really well developed and defined. And I think historically they have fared there well. Obviously, past events kind of help you recalibrate them. And some models are proprietary, some are in use throughout the industry. So I think that you, to your point, you might have different, some models might fare better than others, for sure. But none of them were built for renewable energy projects, first of all. None of them were built yet to address the perils that we're talking about more often, like hail and wildfire. Certainly there's been a ton of work that's gone into improving those models right now. But we're kind of in a moment where, yes, there's a model and we have to be informed by that, but we also have to be thinking about the other ways in which we can assess risk. And a lot of it has to do with risk tolerance. What what makes sense to me, given how much can I afford to lose? Like those sorts of questions need to be coming into to play a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And that gets us to our next question in terms of claims, premiums, deductibles. What are we seeing in the market? Are we seeing insurers go out of business because they're having to pay out a lot more in claims than they anticipated? Are we seeing deductibles rising very rapidly and premiums as well? What's going on in the market today? All of it. (laughs) It's a hardening market. And I I should mention that insurers typically will write more than one line of business. So your insurers might be exposed to property and liability and cyber and directors and officers claims. Like, you know, they're writing a lot. And, And that makes sense. That's how they're helping to spread their risk. You might have some small shops that are what we say shutting down a book. So certainly there's been some folks who used to write renewables and are exiting the space because they just didn't make money in it. They don't see it as profitable business, certainly the way it's been priced historically. Perhaps they'll come back at some point now that the prices are rising. But, you know, the immediate effects are prices are increasing, deductibles are increasing, and coverage is getting more restrictive. So all three things are moving against buyers. And I think that, you know, I used to be an underwriter, so I often think that I'm more underwriter friendly than many of my broker colleagues, but they're doing what they need to do to be solvent in the long run, and that's what we need from them. And so we have underpriced this risk historically. That's what the prior losses are telling us. So now we have to find what a better, more sustainable price could be in order to scale the industry. We have to be able to have solvent insurers pay these claims as they continue to arise. So it's been a really painful correction, but they are really trying to scale their models to help us all scale renewable energy. So what I think is happening is typically insurance pricing is cyclical. We are in a hard market now. We get Then more capacity comes in and then supply and demand happens and then the prices go back down again. But what I think is happening for renewables specifically is we're in a correcting market that's hiding in a hard market. And so even when the the market starts to turn, I don't expect that renewable energy pricing is going to go back to what we've seen before. That leaves a lot of what I think of as sort of stranded projects that were built in a soft market environment where they could push all the risks off and their financing requires that they push all the risks off and that might no longer be available in the market. But certainly for new projects, we, we have to be more smart and sophisticated in thinking about what the actual insurance prices are going to be, not what we want them to be, not what fits into the model, uh, because we've been doing it wrong, I think, up until this point. So are you saying that there could be stranded assets that are renewable assets because they are so exposed to these new climate change-driven risks that they can't get insurance and that they can't operate maybe at all or not nearly the capacity they were before? I don't think it's going to come to that. I think there will be insurance. It just will not be at a price that the ultimate investors want it to be. And so whether there's any remaining returns in the project is what's at stake here. But the projects themselves can still be insured. I'm not concerned about 
the availability of capacity for renewable energy projects, especially wind and solar, which have established track records. I think what we're seeing now is as the prices have come up, we're getting some some insurers off the sidelines who have historically looked at renewables and said, that's not priced well enough for me. I, I don't want to play. I'm not going to compete in that space. But now they can. And that's good for all of us as more and more insurers have uh, experience with renewables and we spread that risk more broadly, uh, certainly to accommodate the growth that we want to see, that, that would be a good outcome. So I'm not concerned about capacity so much as terms and conditions that are not in line with what was forecasted when the project first went COD. Right. And the impact on new assets under development is that it's more expensive for them to purchase insurance Mm -hmm. and they have to potentially be cited in different areas and they might just spend more in the CapEx initially to harden the asset or otherwise make them more resilient. So it has an impact, you know, that would otherwise depress development if this impact weren't in the play, right? Yeah, it could. And and that's my fear. I mean, we don't want to see insurance sort of be the bottleneck of the industry, of of the scaling that we want to see. But I am concerned that the where projects are being cited and and how they're being built is just not considering insurance, which is one of the only long-term year-on-year costs that the project is going to have. It's really imperative that we think about this realistically. And I always say that sort of renewable energy grew up in a soft market, sort of an accident of timing. You know, when I started underwriting renewables in 2009, 2010, we were in a really soft market and we were all fighting for the business. And we looked around and was like, what could happen to these projects? They're just laying there in the sun. I mean, obviously I'm oversimplifying, but (laughs) clearly we've learned a lot about what can happen to these projects. And and when the losses happen, they can be really sizable. So while we used to just be kind of chasing the denominator, we wanted to write a lot of these projects. We wanted to get them all in so we can have enough premium to pay claims. We were a kind of a race to the bottom from a pricing standpoint. And now the losses have caught up and we have to recalibrate what the appropriate price should be. Well, Let's move to something a little bit more upbeat, and that is new products and new asset classes. So in your first environmental insurance role with AIG, you led an interdisciplinary team focused on assessing the environmental risk and market opportunities posted by commercial scale carbon capture and storage or sequestration, also known as CCS. This was way back in 2010, long before anyone had ever heard of CCS. How has the insurance market for CCS projects evolved over the last decade? And some some more getting developed now, especially with a 45Q tax credit that provides basically government tax credits for projects that capture carbon and sequester it uh, for a long period of time. So as more of these assets hopefully come online, what are we seeing in the insurance market for them? Yeah, it's exciting. It was a really cool project to be involved in back in 2010. It was a pilot project in West Virginia, and it was basically an environmental risk, a perceived environmental risk for a traditional energy client, which is how I got involved in it, being an AIG environmental at the time. The market hasn't evolved much since then, primarily because the industry hasn't evolved much since then. But I do think that, I I share your view, I think we're kind of on the brink of an explosion in carbon capture and storage opportunities. And there's parts of this that will be relatively easy to insure. If I think about sort of the construction of pipelines and compressor stations, those so, you know, the industry knows how to underwrite that. But in terms of property insurance for the carbon sequestering equipment or the environmental exposure of the injection itself of the underground well or the products liability associated with any aggregates that are made out of the sequestered carbon to be used in roadway, all of that is kind of stuff we have to think through. And your point about 45Q is well taken too. I mean, there could be a tax liability insurance product. Certainly there is a a very robust tax liability market, but no one yet is offering a product there. We're still trying to figure that out. So I think we're in a moment where there's a lot of kind of collective education 
education that we all have to to take, the insurers community, the broker community, and then obviously the buyers too, and kind of bringing ourselves all along to sort of a mutually beneficial way that we can share some of this risk and support the growth of this technology. That's really exciting to think about being, I do, I do think we're kind of at the very beginning stages of something that the insurance community is very well positioned to handle. It's just going to take us a little while to to make the products and the underwriting match what the exposure is. And on the topic of new products, you mentioned tax liability insurance. I think you may have mentioned or we've talked previously about insurance to protect generation at a certain level, uh, resource insurance in, in some case. What is the most promising new insurance product out there that will really help the industry grow, the renewable energy industry and carbon, climate positive, carbon decarbonization industry grow more broadly? I don't think there's something magic or you know super sexy that we're going to develop around insurance, unfortunately. I think it is just getting insurers knowledgeable and excited about where climate tech is going. So I'm thinking about certainly more projects. You know, you've mentioned storage a few times. The insurance market is, after suffering a very large loss back in 2009 timeframe, they've gotten very smart around a storage and where the technology is, and they're very willing to deploy their capacity there a little bit cautiously, which I think is a good thing, but we can absolutely ins- provide insurance for storage assets. But yeah, thinking about sort of even just the manufacturing of new climate technology, you know, how do we, you know, that's a pretty off the shelf product. It's property insurance, but it needs to be deployed to something new. Uh, so it kind of takes me back to where I was in 2010 when I was thinking about solar insurance in the first place, sort of a traditional insurance product with a new application. And that's kind of exciting to think about. I think carbon capture and storage is the best way to think about it. We're seeing that similarly renewable natural gas projects, uh, that there's certainly a market for a little bit more challenging to place, but definitely a market for that. So there are ways through, and I think the insurance community is, I think, in recognition of the fact that they are paying the bills for climate change, whether they call it that or not, thinking through other revenue generation in terms and following where the economy is going and supporting the growth of bright spots in the economy, I think we'll absolutely see insurance, insurer participation in that. Excellent. Well, we're almost done, but we have a tradition here at Climate Positive where we like to ask our guests a series of rapid fire lightning round questions. And since these are candid conversations with a climate theme, we call this the hot seat. So for the first round, I'll ask you to fill in the blank for the following statements. The most important advice I have ever followed is? So when I first started at Sun Edison, I met an attorney there who told me that I should just look around and pick a problem and solve it. And I think he meant that as as more of like, yep, you know, there's lots of things wrong here, you know, have at it. Uh, but that's really stayed with me. And I actually kind of use that in my life in general, just to sort of uh, inspires me to kind of roll up my sleeves, kind of recognize something that needs fixing and just jump in and, and do it. So pick a problem and solve it. The best feedback I ever rejected is? I think it's probably like, some generic advice around selling. My, my role at CAC is, is bringing in new clients, um, but you know a lot of sales training, tell, you know, talking about the cold call and your elevator pitch and all of that. And I'm just, that's just not me. I try to be really thoughtful in who I approach and make sure that I have something really valuable that I think could be of service. So you know, I'm not dialing for dollars often, which a lot of producers do really well by, but um, it doesn't doesn't work for me. The most insightful book or article I read over the last month is. The IPCC report mm. is always very depressing. Yeah, we're not supposed to go back to the depressing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, the next one will be my favorite Broadway show is Broadway is coming back this fall. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite Broadway show is? Uh, it's probably too cliche to say Hamilton, although 
That's certainly up there. I I will add my very first Broadway show was Starlight Express. Oh. I was six years old. They were roller skating. My mom took me, she made me get dressed up. And that has really stayed with me because I still get dressed up to go to Broadway because it's a special occasion. So I always get mad when I see people wearing jeans at the theater. I'm like, this is special. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next section, overrated or underrated? Suburban New Jersey. Underrated. It's been great. I moved there about five years ago. It's We're really happy in uh, our little town of Maplewood. So given our ages, the next one is Gen X. Underrated. Because? Well, ask the next one. <laughs> Millennials. <laughs> also underrated. I like to think I sit at the crux of the two, and so <laughs> I do not want to cast stones at anyone in any category that I might myself fall into. Yeah, I just feel like those general stereotypes of those categories are, are just hard, as we would, wouldn't want to stereotype any group of people. There are some people in the millennial age who I've been so impressed with, go-getters, and you know, not at all fitting that millennial stereotype, and then some Gen Xers who are coasting and and kind of everything in between. So, yes, the life of a zillennial, which is <laughs> maybe what I am too. Um, Oregonian wine, underrated. I don't have much of a palette, a refined palette for wine, but having been to some Oregon wineries and tasted the Oregon Pinot, that's exactly where I go in the wine shop now, and that's all I drink. Gender diversity in the workplace. Underrated and still underrepresented. My first job, I've been very fortunate. My first job in insurance was at AIG, tons of women in leadership there. My chief underwriting officer, products, general counsel, all women. My team now, I've been on a team for the past five years, and we're mostly women-led. Uh, but that's the anomaly for sure, uh, certainly in insurance, certainly I'm sure in the corporate world more broadly. So we're unique. We're a female-led team in insurance and in sales and energy. Sometimes that actually opens some doors for us, uh, and sometimes I'm sure it doesn't. Uh, but we're kind of all excited about the opportunities we can provide for women within our team. We were just on a leadership call before, and it was six women. And it almost doesn't feel notable anymore, but it, I recognize that it still is unique. Um, but the insurance community just has a great deal of work to do for diversity in general, not just gender. Right. Yes. So does the uh, climate-positive world more broadly. Yeah. One more fill-in-the-blank. To me, climate-positive means? To contribute to the challenges of climate change in a creative way, uh, pick a problem and solve it kind of mentality. It can be daunting otherwise. Excellent. Well, that is great advice. <laughs> Thank you very much, Sarah. It's been a really great time chatting with you. Thanks, Chad. Climate Positive is produced by Hannah Armstrong. Tell us what you thought about the conversation. You can send us show ideas by tweeting at us at Hannah Armstrong or send us a note at climatepositive at hannahnarmstrong.com. If you like the show, feel free to give us a rating or share with a friend. It helps others learn about the show and our climate positive mission. I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.